Good morning, everybody. Did you had a good week this week? It's been a good week here around Harvest. We got a lot of things done. Praise God, we were able to go and we were supposed to feed the JV team this week a pregame meal and wound up feeding the varsity as well. And uh, they cleaned up everything we had. Praise God. <laughs> They're not bashful when it comes to food. They eat and they eat well. Ladies Bible study started this week and there's a, there's a good host of ladies on Tuesday nights and Thursday mornings. Daniel Plan uh, fitness class continued to go on. I think we had some on Thursday morning and again some, uh, excuse me, Wednesday morning and some Wednesday evening. There's still some room, right, Kathy? If they want to come and suffer with the rest of us, you can come. Kathy's working us out. Amen. Um, I think we've got Harvest Day coming up real soon. Amen? You guys going to be a part of that? We're going to have a good time welcoming our community to come on our campus and have some fun with us. It's going to be a good time. Hope you'll volunteer, be a part of that. Got some good news. Miss Brenda Preston's out of the hospital and now in a, in a rehab over in Cortland. Uh, I want you to pray specifically for her that she will eat. She needs to eat to get healthy. Amen? Amen. Well, we're going to start the book of Matthew this morning. And uh, I think we're going to have a good study as we go through this. Before we get into the book of Matthew, there's some scripture I want to reflect on. There was a time when Jesus was being arrested and he stood before Pilate. And Pilate asked him this interesting question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate asked, your own people and their leader, their leading priest brought you here. Why? What have you done? And then Jesus answered with these words. He says, I'm not an earthly king. If I were, my followers would have fought when I was arrested by the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate replied, you're a king then. And he said, well, you say that I am a king and you're right. I was born for that purpose and I came to bring truth to the world. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. And then Pilate responded, what is truth? Well, was, king, was Jesus just, a, was he a king or was he just a man? What's the truth there? We're going to explore that subject today. You know, Pilate was not the first to encounter the truth about Jesus being a king. In fact, God makes a rather interesting statement through Isaiah the prophet about himself. He made that statement about himself, but you're going to find as we look through scripture that later on it's going to apply to Jesus as well. Look at what God said in Isaiah 45. He said, let all the world look to me for salvation. For I am. Notice that, for I am, that's that Old Testament name for God. For I am God and there is no other. And I have sworn by my own name that, and I will never go back on my word. Every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess allegiance to my name. Well, what's God's name? Depends on who you talk to today. There are people that would tell you that God's name is, is uh Buddha or Allah. But when I look into the scriptures, what I find, God's name is Yahweh. 
Some call him Jehovah. He alone, friends, is the God that every knee will bow to. One day every tongue is going to confess that he alone is God. Some are going to do that in heaven because they've done that on earth. And others are going to do it in hell because they refuse to do it on earth. But either way, every human being that has ever lived on this planet will one day bow a knee and confess that there's one God and they're going to call him by his name. I promise you that. Because that's what Jesus promises in Scripture. Now, the Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah with some minor changes in his letter to the Christians in Rome, and he does so in an interesting way and for a specific and very good reason. Evidently, there were some Christians in Rome that were saying some things that they should not say, and there were some people that were getting their feelings hurt. So, so he writes these words in the 14th chapter of Romans. Paul says, accept Christians who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything. That's me. <laughs> Except collard greens. I don't eat collard greens. But anyway, but, uh, but another believer who has a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. I think that's what Kathy wants us to do. Actually, the Daniel plan's leading that way. Y'all pray for me. Can you imagine me eating just vegetables? I haven't got that picture up here yet, but I'm, I'm working on it, okay? Verse three says, those who think it's all right to eat anything must not look down on those who want. And those who won't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. Here's the key, for God has accepted them. He accepts us where we're at, Amen. He accepts us the way we are. Who are you to condemn God's servants? They are responsible to the Lord, so let him tell them whether they are right or wrong. The Lord's power will help them to do as they should. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. Each person, each person should have a personal conviction about the matter. Those who have a special day for worshiping the Lord are trying to honor him. And those who eat all kinds of foods do so to honor the Lord since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who want to eat everything do uh, what uh, also want to uh, please the Lord and give thanks to God. Look at verse 7. For we are not our own masters when we live or when we die. We when, while we live... Uh, we live to please the Lord, and when we die, we go to be with the Lord. So in life and in death, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, so that he might be the Lord. He might be king of those who are alive and of those who have died. He goes on to say in verse 10, so why do you condemn another Christian? Why do you look down on another Christian Remember, each of us will stand personally before the judgment seat of God. That's the judgment seat of Christ. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb where our deeds are going to be tried. They're going to be weighed and measured and, and our motives. And we're going to be rewarded for things that were done with the right motive and for the right reason. Look again at, verse, at chapter 14, verse 11. He says, for the scripture says, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess allegiance to God. 
Yes, each of us will have to give a personal account to God. Paul reminds us. Later when Paul penned his letter to the Philippian church, he again addressed the need for Christians to live in a harmonious relationship with other believers by having the mind of Christ. And he says that we need to live and treat others with the same attitude that Jesus had. And he tells us a little bit about that in Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. He says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? I believe so. Any comfort from his love? Absolutely. Any fellowship together in the spirit? More than we can ever imagine. He says, are your hearts tender and sympathetic? Well, they should be. He says, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one heart and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble. Think of others as better than yourself. Don't think only about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they are doing. In verse 5, he says, your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Well, how in the world do we get the same attitude that Jesus had? Two thoughts. First, I think we need to do everything we can to study the life of Jesus in Scripture so we understand something about his character and about his life. If you want to see something about him, just read Scripture and you'll learn about what Jesus was. That'll give you head knowledge. But more than the head knowledge, you need the heart knowledge. And to do that, you need to know him personally, right? There needs to be a relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to know him personally with your heart. It's kind of like the married couple that had been married for over two-thirds of their life. Joyce and I were talking about this yesterday. I said, baby, do you realize in just a few more years we're going to be married for 50 years? This November we're going to be married 42 years. Bless her heart. <laughs> That's a long time to be married. But this older couple got together and one of them said, you know, we've been together so long and we think so much alike that sometimes we, we complete each other's sentences. We, we finish those sentences. We, we think alike. Well, that's what's going to happen if you spend time with the Lord. When you walk with him and you spend time with the Lord, you can't help but begin to begin to have his likeness and, and his thoughts. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you that you grow in yourself the mind of Christ. It is a process. I want you to look with me at some of the qualities that you should gain from having the mind of Christ. Galatians 5, 22 gives a good list. Paul writes, but when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, and by the way, that's not automatic, is it? That's something you get up in the morning and you decide whether you're going to let the Lord control your life. In fact, that's something you do every time there is a decision that needs to be made. Am I going to do this God's way or am I going to do it my way? But look at what he says. When the Holy Spirit controls our lives, he will produce this kind of fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Self-control. That's one of the ones we have the hardest time with, isn't it? Being under control. Self-control. 
He says those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passion and the desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. If we're living now by the Holy Spirit, let, let us follow the Holy Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or irritate one another or be jealous of one another. Guys, these are without questions. Christ-like qualities that, that the Spirit wants to work into your heart, into your mind, into your life, into your words, into your actions, into everything that we do. William Crook said, when we surrender, and that is a very key word, when we surrender to the Spirit's work, a great transformation begins. Our minds begin to be renewed. Put it, put it differently, we begin to have the mind of Christ. So the next time that you get frustrated and want to give somebody a piece of your mind, choose instead to be like Jesus and take the form of a bondservant. This dying to self action will leave a lasting impression on the heart and the mind of anyone who is watching your life. Oh, and by the way, the world's watching, isn't it? As well as the Lord, is he not? Paul goes on in verse 6 of Philippians 2 to write these words. He's talking about Jesus. He said, though he was God. Though Jesus was God, he did not demand or cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave. And he appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further, by dying a criminal's death on the cross. Because of this, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every name, every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dr. Hayes Wicker said, as Christ died on the cross, it looked like the champion of eternal life had been knocked down and out. Satan danced around the ring with his fist raised in mock triumph, but then what? Christ rose from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. He was brought back to live again. He experienced the resurrection that he promised if you'll study the Greek word for resurrection, you'll find it means to, to cause to stand up. Folks, after Jesus had taken Satan's best shot, and it was a count of three, he stood up to live again. And I guess you could probably say Jesus has been given the title undisputed heavyweight champion of the universe. And guess what? He's never going to relinquish that championship. That's his belt. He'll always wear it. God exalted his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Now the word exalt means to lift above and beyond. Again, Dr. Wicker says Jesus is in a different league from anyone and anything he is our Lord, he is our God, and one day every contender and every dictator will bow before him and recognize that fact. Why do we know that? Look again at what scripture says. God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, 
the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That's everywhere, folks. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is king. He's Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, just how important is a name? How important is a name? <laughs> Pretty important if God gives it to you. I'd say it was very important. Very important if God says your name is the most important name in the world. You know, most people don't get to choose their names. I didn't. You probably didn't. If for somehow, if for some reason you're a man and your name is Sue, you might want to change that name. Most ladies change their last names when they get married. Last names are changed when children are adopted. But most people go by the name that they were given. I remember hearing the story of how my mother got her name, Miss Betty. When she was born, Papa Smith said, that's too big a name for such a little baby, so we're just going. And her, her name, they gave, they gave her the name Maggie Elizabeth. But they wound up calling her Betty, Miss Betty. Names are important. Names are important. The Bible's very clear here that God gave Jesus the name that he received when he was born. God alone named his son. He sent an angel to tell both Mary and Joseph what that special name was supposed to be. Look with me at Luke chapter 1 verse 30. The angel is speaking to Mary one-on-one. -on -one. Don't be frightened, Mary, for God has decided to bless you. You will become pregnant and have a son, and you're to name him Jesus he will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will, will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. Imagine Mary hearing that. What do you do with that? <laughs> well, evidently between the time the angel spoke to her and the angel spoke to Joseph, they have a conversation. And she tells Joseph, I'm pregnant. And he goes, what? <laughs> How in the world did that happen? We haven't been together. Well, as Joseph was considering all of that, as he's contemplating the conversation he had with Mary, said he must have gotten tired, he fell asleep, and, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to go ahead with your marriage to Mary, for the child within her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So you see, before Jesus was even born, he was given this glorious name, and it pointed to two specific things. First, his majesty. There is no one on the same level as Jesus Christ. It also points to his divine purpose. He is the only Savior that God is sending into this world. Romans 10, 13 says this, For anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, the name of the King, will be saved. One day, every person will bow their knee to King Jesus. You're going to do it now? 
Are you going to do it later? I promise you, it will happen, what Scripture teaches. Let's look at this first verse in Matthew chapter 1 at the ancestral tree of Jesus. It's interesting. How many of you have gone back and you know your ancestry? Anybody here? Some of you want to know. Some of you don't want to know. I understand. I've heard a little bit about mine and it's scary. <laughs> Matthew 1.1 says, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of King David and of Abraham. Now, if you were a brand new Christian, you came to me and said, Pastor, what should I begin to read in the Bible? I would never tell you to go read the book of Matthew, nor the book of Revelation. It's pretty boring when you look into Matthew and you see this long list of names, most of which we can't even pronounce. I, I usually tell you if you're a new Christian, go read the book of John. You need to know about Jesus. It's a great gospel. Start there. It's the third or the fourth gospel in the book. Uh, in the books of the New Testament. Matthew's tough because it starts out with this genealogy. It gets to the family tree of Jesus and it's segmented into three sections. You have in the first six verses the genealogy from Abraham all the way through David. From verse 7 through verse 11 you have the genealogy of Solomon through the Babylonian captivity. And then picking up in verse 12 through 17 it gives you everybody from the Babylonian captivity all the way through Joseph the carpenter. I ran across this quote from Dr. J. Vernon McGee the other day and I found it rather interesting and, and I believe what he says is absolutely true. He says, the genealogy which opens the gospel of Matthew and the New Testament is in many respects the most important document in the scripture. Think about that. He says the entire Bible rests upon its accuracy. Its accuracy. I want you to notice that the trustworthiness of the, the New Testament rests upon the accuracy of this genealogy that, that gives us the, the facts about the Lord Jesus Christ and his relationship with, with Abraham and even with uh, the line of David. Coming from Abraham, from his family, places Jesus within the community of the Jewish nation. Very important that he's in that. But coming from the family of David puts Jesus on the throne. It helps us see that he is the king, that he's the king that comes from a royal family, a royal line. Now, something I noticed as I was reading this, I want you to make note of it. In fact, Matthew says that Jesus is a descendant of King David and then of Abraham. Well, didn't Matthew know that Abraham lived before David? Didn't he? Has he just got it backwards here? No, he knew. But he did it this way to make a point. He wanted to make sure that we understood that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the, the, the one who is going to be king. He is the one who's going to establish that heavenly kingdom on earth. That's what's the most important. That's what comes first. In order for Jesus to be able to fulfill all those Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, he had to come from the line of David. And, and Matthew wants us to know that he did. He makes that clear. In fact, Matthew takes it even further and he calls Jesus the Messiah. That's a pretty bold statement. Very bold. So Matthew says Jesus 
is the son of David, but he also says he's the son of Abraham, and that too has some very important uh, uh, points about it. In fact, you see, God made a promise to Abraham. It's found in Genesis 22, verse 17. He said, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sands of the seashore. You ever stop to think about how many Jewish people are in the world? They're everywhere. Pretty much in every nation around the world, they're Jewish, there's a Jewish community. God has done just what he said he was going to do. He said, your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, Paul gives commentary to that passage in the book of Galatians with these words. He said, God gave the promise to Abraham and his child. And notice that it doesn't say the promise was to his children as if it meant many descendants, but the promise was to his child. And that, of course, means Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, I, I want you to move with me to verse 2 because as we jump into verse 2, what we're going to see is the amazing grace of God at work in this family tree. How many of you need a good dose of grace? I think you probably need more than you think you do. Grace is important. Now, praise God, God's not like most people, and, and especially politicians. I mean, God has nothing to hide, amen? He, he doesn't have to erase or bleach his emails to hide the truth from anybody. I'm just saying. The beautiful thing about God is that he's totally transparent. Think about it. He has revealed himself to mankind from day one. And his greatest revelation of himself is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He wants you to know who he is. God traced the conception, the birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of his one and only son, Jesus. And God tells us exactly the way that it happened. In fact, God names all the descendants of Jesus, I like this, warts and all. He tells it like it is. In Jesus' ancestral tree, what you're going to find is people being people. Life would be fun if people weren't being people. Hello? But when we are people, life gets tough. But God tells us about the people in Jesus' life and he doesn't cover up their sinfulness. He doesn't hide the truth. He wants you to understand something about his grace. One thing for sure, the sinlessness of Jesus wasn't passed on to him genetically. Think about that. In his genealogy, what you find is some pretty sinful people. People like you and me. In fact, there was an assortment. There's, there is an assortment in this genealogy of women who were social at, outcast. You've got Tamar listed in this genealogy. First of all, most genealogy in, in, in the Jewish community don't list women. It's interesting that these are here. You've got Tamar, the Canaanite daughter, daughter-in-law of Judah. She married 
Judah's son and didn't have a child. He died, married another son. He didn't have a child through him and he died. And, and so she was promised to, to, to be able to marry another son later on. And that didn't seem like it was ever, ever going to happen. So she took things into her own hand and she tricked and seduced her father-in-law uh, so that she could have an heir. And after that, Judah and Tamar then birthed twin boys, Perez and Zerah. Folks, she was guilty of prostitution and incest. And even though that was the case, God poured his grace on her and her family. He poured out that grace on them. You've got Rahab mentioned. She was a Gentile prostitute that found favor with God by, by hiding some of the Jewish spies at a very critical time in the, the life of the nation of Israel. She was a, a prostitute who later became the wife of Salmon, one of the kings, and the mother of godly Boaz, and uh, who was King David's great-grandfather. And then there's Ruth. We know about the story of Ruth. She was a Gentile wife of Boaz. A Gentile being included in a, a Jewish genealogy. That's interesting. She became the grandmother of Israel's greatest king, King David. And then you're going to find that there's also a, a woman by the name of Bathsheba. We know that David had an affair with her. We know that he killed her husband and took her. And later they were eventually married and and she became the mother of Israel's wisest and richest king, King Solomon. All that's rather interesting to me. But there were also some terribly wicked kings that are mentioned in this genealogy. Uh, Ahaz was a, a really bad king when you study his life. But then there's this guy that overshadows him, a guy by the name of Manasseh. He was the worst of the worst. In 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 2, it says, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the detestable practices of the pagan nations whom the Lord had driven from, from the land ahead of the Israelites. He rebuilt the pagan shrines his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He constructed altars for Baal and, and set up an Asherah pole just as King Ahab of Israel had done. He also bowed before all the forces of heaven. That's, that's the demonic forces of heaven. And he worshiped them. And he even built pagan altars in the temple of the Lord. And he, and he placed, or the place where the Lord had said that his name should be honored. He built these altars for all the forces of heaven in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. Manasseh even sacrificed his own son in the fire. He offered his child as a sacrifice to a pagan god. He practiced sorcery, divination, and he even consulted with mediums and psychics. He did much that was evil in the Lord's sight, and he aroused the Lord's anger. I told you God didn't hide anything when he put this genealogy together. None of the ancestors of Jesus were perfect. They were people, they were sinners just like you and me. But God in his amazing grace made good out of bad, did he not? And he brought out of this genealogy through his amazing grace, his son. He brought forth his Messiah, 
our Savior and our King. And, you know, it dawned on me, if, if God can do such a wonderful thing like Jesus from such a misfit and dysfunctional family, imagine what he can do with you and me. <laughs> Ooh, God's grace. We need it. I told you we do. Look at the genealogy. It says Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Their mother was Tamar. That was his daughter-in-law. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Amenadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon was the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. She was a prostitute. Boaz was the father of Obed, and his mother was Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, and his mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asaph, and Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a great king, but Hezekiah was the father of Manassas. Manassas was the father of Amos, and Amos was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiachin and his brothers born at the time of the exile to Babylon. And after the Babylonian exile, Jehoiachin was the father of Sheatil. Sheatil was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Elikim, and Elikim was the father of Azor. And Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph. Now you know why I wouldn't recommend you reading the book of Matthew to begin with. It's rather boring. But I'm about to show you something that's not. What I want you to see and what Matthew has put together here for us is evidence that Jesus' birth, God's son, was not a natural birth. It was a supernatural birth. Now, there's some evidence here for what we call an essential belief. You go through my class, we're going to talk about essential beliefs. Things that I believe are spiritual truths that you must believe in order to be a Christian and you must believe in order to be able to have fellowship with other Christians. Things like the deity of Christ. You know, any religion that does not hold Jesus as being God is what? It's a cult. It's a cult. The bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is also an essential and yet I have met Baptists that believe in the spirit resurrection. No. The Bible says Jesus came forth bodily from the tomb. He had a glorified body when he came out. There was nothing left in that tomb except grave clothes. So here's an essential belief that I want you to sink your teeth in and hang on to. Don't ever let anybody 
tell you differently because this is what Scripture teaches. Jesus, God's one and only Son, was born of a virgin named Mary. She had never been with a man when she conceived the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, if Mary wasn't a virgin when she, uh, uh, when Jesus was conceived in birth, then there's no way back for you and me to God. We're separated and we'll never make it back. If Jesus had an earthly biological father, then he too became a sinner and could not take our sins to the cross. He couldn't pay our sin debt. You know why? Because he'd have his own sin debt to pay. If Jesus had been a sinner, then there's no way he can make things right between you and God. But I want you to notice how verse 16 ends. This is very important. Man, this is, this is good stuff. It said Jacob was the father of Joseph, which is true. But notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. Did y'all see that? There's a break here in, in the, the gene, genealogical pattern. And there's a reason for it. It says Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Folks, Matthew is telling us that Joseph was Mary's husband and Mary did give birth to Jesus, but Joseph was not the father of Jesus. If he had been, he'd have been listed in the genealogy. Folks, there's some truth here. It's found in Matthew's gospel. It's found in Luke's gospel and it's very clear. And I put five things in your notes that I want you to hang on to. Number one, Jesus was born of a virgin. That is absolutely critical. Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. And Mary was not unfaithful to Joseph. And Jesus was not an illegitimate child. And Jesus was supernaturally conceived and birthed. Folks, he is God. He's king. And Luke bears that out and so does Matthew. Look with me at, at, at Luke chapter one. I, and I wanna just remind you, Luke was not your average Joe. He is a doctor. And he gives very specific facts that are medical in nature, but he also gives a very thorough account of the way things happened. Luke chapter one, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel, angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin. Do you get that circle, that word? A virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. She was in that middle stage. In fact, in, in the life of a lady who is Jewish, there's three stages in the process of marriage. There's the promise stage, there's the engagement stage, and there's the consummation stage. In that middle stage of engagement, she is literally legally married to Joseph, but they're not living together and they're not cohabitating together. He's off getting a job. He's off finding a house. He's building a nest for his wife that he's gonna bring home at the end of a year. Only then will they be together 
That's the Jewish way. That's a godly way. It says she was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. You ever had an angel visit you? Mary hadn't. She's caught up in this and trying to figure out why in the world would God send an angel to me? Look at verse 29. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. The angel said, don't be frightened, Mary, for God has decided to bless you. I like this. You will become pregnant and have a son and you are to name him Jesus and he will be very great and and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Boy, that's a lot to put on a young teenage girl. She probably was not even 20. Mary thought for a brief moment and then she asked the angel, how can I have a baby? Guys, if she hadn't been concerned, we wouldn't have evidence that she was a virgin. She's concerned. How can I have a baby? I'm a virgin. I haven't been with a man, she says. But the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby born to you will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. The angel tells her how this divine conception is going to take place. It's going to be through the power of God. God will put the seed of his Son in her womb. No sexual encounter here, just a divine miracle. And then he gives her an example of the power of God already at work. She needed evidence. He says in verse 36, what's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say that she was barren, but she's already in her sixth month. For you see, nothing is impossible with God. Mary, do you see if I can do this for Elizabeth, God says I can do it for you. Notice verse 38. This is one of the most important parts of this whole message this morning. It says Mary responded to God. You know, every time you encounter God, he expects a response from you. Do you know that? He expects you to respond the way that he has pricked your heart. And notice how she responded to the Lord. I am the Lord's servant and I I am willing to accept whatever he wants. May everything you have said come true. And then the angel left. Three things about Mary's statement that I want you to pay close attention to. Number one, she says, Lord, I am your servant. I am here to do your bidding, Lord. That's number one. And that's what we should all want to do is be the servant of the Lord because he served us through the cross. No one's ever served you any better than Jesus did. He met your greatest need when you couldn't do anything about it. Notice the second thing she says, I am willing to accept your will for my life. 
Oh, I had things planned a different way, but God, now you're telling me that this is the way you want my life to go. I am willing to accept your will for my life. How many of us are willing to do that? Notice the third thing. She says, Lord, through my life, may your will be done. How many of us are willing to take that kind of commitment and live out our life according to the will of God. Most people won't give God the time of day. But Mary said, I will let my life be used to do your will. Do you know that God is looking for some more Marys? He's looking for some more Marys, not to birth his son. Don't get in line for that. Don't worry about that. He doesn't want that. What he wants is, you to live for his son. He wants you to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He wants you to do his will in this life. I love what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. It is a challenge to me every time I read it. We read it the other day as we were going through the Daniel plan, as we were listening to scripture read and, and spoken before Guys, we're not just trying to lose weight and get in shape. We're trying to get right with God. Amen, Kathy? Amen. Look at what Paul writes here. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, sisters, in view of God's mercy. You know what God's mercy is? It's God not giving you what you deserve. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Your bodies. A very important part of you. He wants them to be living sacrifices. Look at, look at the condition he wants them in. Holy and pleasing to God. For this is your spiritual act of worship. Notice what he says in verse 2 because this is where our problem is. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That is the hardest thing in the world to do, to live in the world and not be shaped by the world. We, we're bombarded with it. Every time we turn on the radio, every time we turn on the TV, every time we go to this or to that, the world is saying, be like the world. Well, who's running the world? Mm, amen, thank you. We don't need to be shaped by the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. You renew your mind as you get in God's word, as you read it, as you allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and, and make you uh, able to understand what scripture is teaching you. He says, then you'll be able to test and approve of what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Guys, how many of us have made that commitment? How many of us are willing to make that kind of commitment? How many of us are really willing to let Jesus become king in our life? Lord, how many of us are willing to get up in the morning and say, okay, God, what do you want to do with my life? You know, I'd like to do this and like to do that, but if it's not in your will for me to do that, then I'll go do what you want me to do, Lord. How many of us are willing to do that? Are you willing to let him be the king of your life? 
the Lord of your life. That's what he wants to be. But guys, it's not without sacrifice. It's not without surrender. One of the greatest battles that God and I ever had was when God was calling me into ministry. I had my life mapped out. I knew what I was going to do with my life. At least I thought I did. I was trying to get there. But then God said, I got a different plan. And I fought him and I fought him and I fought him to the point that I finally had to surrender or die. (laughs) What are you battling God over? What does God want to do with your life? What are you struggling with? I know this, and I leave you with this thought. You'll never be at peace within yourself and with God until you surrender to his will and you do what he desires for you to do. Harvest is about servanthood. It's about serving God. You got a lot of opportunities to do that here. I just challenge you to look around and find out what God would have you to do and join him. I believe there's something God's speaking to you about today, has been for a long time. My prayer is that you will say yes today. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for everything that you have done to give us an opportunity to know you personally with our, with our heart and with our life. Thank you, Father, for a plan to save us from our sinfulness, from the consequences of our sin. Thank you for sending Jesus, Lord, to save our soul. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for your spirit that work together to teach us truth about who we are in relationship to you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us opportunities to be saved, opportunities to serve, opportunities to share. Thank you, God, that you've included us who are already trusting you and following you. Thank you, Lord, that you're giving opportunities today to include people into your family. Even today, Lord, lost souls can be saved. You've made that quite clear. That's why Jesus came. Lord, help us to take advantage of this opportunity. This is probably the the holiest part and the most important part of this service today is the time when we make decisions to serve our King or we make decisions not to. God, I pray that you will be glorified through obedience today as people do what you put on their heart to do. Lord, Thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, your love, your compassion. Thank you for a plan to include us into your family. We love you for it and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.